podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. As always, I'm joined by George Belshaw, uh, the tennis writer, and our in-house tennis coach, Calvin Beton. George, how are you? Yeah, oh, sorry. I thought... <laughs> <laughs> what a <laughs> start. <laughs> wow. George, you've lost a bit of hair and aged about 10 years overnight. It's remarkable. Steady on. Steady on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Go on, George. I, tell me how you are. I, I, I'm fine. You, you you nailed my answer, and it really put me off there, Calvin, because it sounded <laughs> like we were going down the, sa- the same road there. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm doing okay. How, how are you, Calvin? It seems like you wanted to get in there, so I won't hold you back. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm just fuming that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's claiming a goal that he definitely hasn't scored. I'm just I was just in the midst of texting all my Man United mates the same thing. Uh, <laughs> that's why I wasn't fully paying attention to James's uh, intro. <laughs> This is a cracking start, as always. Um, if if you if you haven't edited that out, it must mean the rest of the pod's really struggling. But um, yes, welcome back to the Love Tennis Pod. We've got loads to talk about this week. I've got George and Calvin here, as always. We're going to have a look at the Davis Cup. Canada, of course, triumphing in that, and their great form in team competition goes on. Uh, there's also been Davis Cup draw. Britain have got a rather interesting trip to Colombia in February that I'm eyeing up, albeit. It involves going from Australia to South America, which in terms of jet lag is about as bad as you can possibly do, um, especially at the end of a Grand Slam. Uh, we'll also talk a bit about Iga Shontek and some pretty concerning allegations in Poland that she's been talking about. Um, and we'll have a look at the beginning of awards season because um, we are coming around to that time of year when we try and uh, make up a load of awards. The ATP do the same and then they just give it to Roger Federer. But there really is only one place to start actually, and for once, uh, it's not necessarily the Davis Cup. It's not necessarily Felix or Aliassime. It is, and I think we probably sometimes understate how well um, Henry Patton and Julian Cash have played this year and exactly all of the accolades. And we've become so used to to victory that we maybe don't talk about it, Calvin. Someone someone messaged the pod, and I can't remember who it was this year, and they said, oh, you always, just as you're wrapping up, mention that Patton and Cash have won another title. And yes, it's true, but um, they have won another title, and that is a phrase that you can pretty much copy and paste into, uh, into most podcasts. But Calvin, you were out there in Italy proving that they don't only win when you're not there, which I thought was pretty valuable for your career. But uh... <laughs> excuse me, they won two in the summer when I was there. As well. <laughs> yes, yes, and true. all and all five futures that they won this year, I was there as well. So excellent, very good. Um, to, 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 I mean, when we spoke to you last week, you just arrived in Italy and we're still battling the grumpy hotel receptionist and dodgy food. But once the tennis got started, it sounded like it went pretty well. Um, yeah, first two. It was a strange challenger, to be fair. It wasn't a particularly good one, but I was talking to the tournament director and don't think they had much sort of fault there, really. Um, it was a tournament that he said they'd been running for um, four years pre-COVID and they were getting it off the ground and it was quite a big success. And then COVID came and they've not done it for the last two years and uh, they struggled for finance this year. It was in a particularly... Uh, 
not a particularly wealthy area of Italy, to say the least. Um, the roads were damaged and that kind of thing. And strangely, they had one match caught at the main centre, which was a like a kind of mini arena, or it was a proper arena, actually. Um, and a second match caught about 20 minutes away from that and a practice caught in a different place entirely. So it was difficult. It was a difficult, uh, a strange week, to say the least, managing times and that kind of thing. Because the transport network seemed to also only go through the main centre. Um, if you wanted to go from your hotel to the practice courts, you couldn't do that. You had to go hotel to the main centre to practice courts. And then if your match was on the other court, you had to go from practice courts to the main centre back to uh, the the other court. So, yeah, it was a strange tournament. Um, but, yeah, did well. The final got a bit fiery. Played a couple of Italians. Um, they had a decent crowd in and they were quite raucous and not particularly neutral um didn't mind at all clapping a missed first serve and slow clapping a second serve that kind of thing i'm all for that i i i know it's not the done thing but i'm all for. i, I didn't i actually didn't notice it the lads were getting pretty wound up but i was in the stand and then when they lost the first set i went down to the um uh side of the court to uh purely to watch and not do any coaching on the side <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I sort of got a bit vocal myself. I didn't realize how vocal I got till I rewatched the match. But you can hear me. If anyone wants to rematch the match, rewatch the match on ATP Challenger TV, they'll hear me chirping away for the whole second. <laughs> and set. definitely not coaching. <laughs> no, just purely encouragement. Ah, I see. Very good. I mean, just just tell talk about noise for a second because this came up at the. Uh, I'm trying to think where it was. Was it Paris this year, this year? Oh no, it was ATP Finals when Taylor Fritz. Uh, dumped like a, a simple put-away backhand into the net and then someone had shouted when the ball was in the air and he immediately turned around and, and complained. And I put something on Twitter saying, I really think players should get over it a bit. You know, in practice, there's loads of noise all over the place, especially, you know, on cramped practice arenas. Um, and, you know, no one seems to be that bothered, Calvin. I, I don't know... I guess if it's completely quiet and then there's a noise, it could be off-putting. But it, doesn't tennis need to get a bit less uppity about lots of noise in an arena? Yeah, I, I don't mind it. I know a lot of the players and a lot of commentators sort of hate the US Open for that reason. But, you know, a lot of the players have come through, you know, playing futures. You've got people moving and noise happening all the time. Um, mm. I think that's a fair point that somebody else said. If, if it's silent and then there's a noise, that's different than there being constant noise. Mm. Um the only thing I think it's a problem in, and the lads played a challenger in America or maybe Canada the uh, week before last, and if you were the 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 main court, they insisted on playing like a full introduction with national anthems uh, of the players who were coming on and big dance music at the entrance, and if you were on the other court, which was literally behind the stand, they said you just couldn't hear the ball hitting the strings or anything. It was a really <laughs> strange uh, atmosphere, but it was so loud i could yeah. hear it on the on watching the stream like excessively loud and i can't imagine anybody in the arena found it pleasant but i think it's you know golf has the same thing where amateurs and even pros at kind of mid-level just deal with noise all the time and it's not a big deal uh, but i kind of love it when you know when they're playing Ryder cup for example and someone gets on a tee and says yeah bring the noise like i'll hit through the noise and i think it does prove that the noise is not the problem. It's the, it's the kind of rea sudden reaction to the noise, George. What, what I find funny about tennis is that this really isn't a thing that's just limited the professional game as well. Like some people at clubs 
get so angry if you like walk around their court like midpoint or something like there is a bit of a culture in some clubs where you have to like stand at the side of the court while they're playing the port and you can only walk, walk around if the club's like closed off and I, I've been genuinely like told off for doing it before when I was like a young young lad and I've, I just I don't understand how you could be like think that highly of your game stood around in like a, a club court in the middle of Birmingham um, to think that me walking around puts you off so I think everyone who's bothered by it is pathetic, isn't it? Really? It's people getting wound up about something that, like, because they want to get wound up about something, so, especially at amateur level, right? But yeah, I, I, even at pro level, I do think, and and I know what you mean, Calvin. Like having gone to the US Open for the first time um, this year, like the the crowd is a joke. Like in the lower bowl, like you, you people don't usually get sat down until about thirty fifteen. Because it the well partly because the stewarding's rubbish and partly because people don't appear to care. I remember one. I think it was during one of the Murray matches, and um, there was like a crowd coming into the lower bowl, and there was a bloke carrying four. Um, oh, George, what's the name of the cocktail that everyone drinks? I've forgotten the name of it now. It, it's something juice, isn't it? Honey juice. There you go. Honey, honey, yeah. Honey juice. It's a sort of pun. Doesn't really work. Anyway, they're about twenty bucks a go, and they're quite nice. Um, and he had four of them in like a carrier and he stood there and it was already 15 love and he stood there like handing them down the road to his mates like being like oh now who had who had the non-alcoholic one and like who had this one and whoever was in the chair turned around and was like sir with the honey juices you're holding up this match please get on with it but um this was entirely different i i feel it's like one of those things, though, that tennis players get wound up about. That, like we spoke about the other week, how every single player knows that no one is ever sorry about a net cord, but every single player gets really irate if their opponent gets a net cord and doesn't apologize. Yeah, yeah and the same like... thing in doubles with tag. Like if you tag an opponent, like that's even worse because you actually intend on doing it. I was just say when you say tag someone, you mean hit them. Yeah, you hit them with the ball, but you're intending. You're literally intending to hit them with the ball and then apologize straight after, and everyone does it. But the outrage when somebody doesn't apologise for a tag, it's like, well, they're not sorry, they're meant to do it. Is there um, an element in when you do, like, intentionally hit someone, like, you're not supposed to try and hit them in the head, or you're not all X, or X, Y, and Z? I don't like, think, I've, I've never seen anybody go for the head. Like, I mean, it's quite a small target for a start, it's not tactically. And it would usually go out if you miss it as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I've never seen anyone go for the head, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, in doubles, it's it's active. The Bryan brothers used to be renowned for it. They'd mm. hit, they'd. I think, um, I think I got told that when Johnny Murray won Wimbledon and he beat the Bryans in the semis, I think they tagged him nine times in the match <laughs> and apologized every single time. <laughs> <laughs> At what stage would you get all stop doing it? Like, but. <laughs> Um, Seems, uh, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I told uh, the lad the other day there was one of the Italian lads was playing very well um, in in the in the first set, and um, when I went down, it's one of the things I said to Henry: you just hit 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 him as hard as you can because they they need shaking up. Like you know, when when someone's playing that well and being hit hard with a tennis ball by somebody who can hit the ball hard will shake you up, and it was a it was a tactic, hundred percent. Cameron, just like reflecting on this season, I mean, can you actually cast your mind back to the start of the season, like what you thought your expectations should be with these guys and just how much they've actually exceeded? What well, I mean, they were both still playing singles. Well, I started coaching Henry at the start of the year. He was still playing singles and has had a pretty good singles year. Like, I think he's gone up 200 places in singles. Um, mm. But 
but the rate that they've really kicked on since the summer, um, no, you know, well, you kind of expect it because no one's ever done it. They've won nine. No one's ever won nine titles in a nine challenger titles in a full year. They'd never played a challenger until May. Mm. Um, so I mean, it, it's a little bit skewed that you know it's like winning the most of the second tier of tournaments, and it it can only really be they've only really won nine because they started so low and won their first one. Like right. you'd normally, if you're entering challenges, you'd normally be higher ranked when you start playing them and you'd have moved out of them before yeah. now. So it's quite unique that they were winning challenges when they were ranked 500 in the world, I guess. Hmm. Um, I was going to ask something similar, but kind of in a different way, which is that can you put your finger on what has changed? For, I mean, obviously you work specifically with Henry, but you do work with a team as a whole. Like, is it is it just you've got two players who complement each other well and have had really, gone into really good form, or has something changed? I think it's been a perfect storm, really, in that regard. In that they got a good run of tournaments at Nottingham in terms of the futures tournaments, the twenty five Ks, where they had some sort of favourable draws that allowed them to get a nice introduction and get to know each other as a pair and that kind of thing at the start and then got a nice run with that and then that run met, because they won all of those they then got you know just i'm not wishing to take anything away from the lads because they've been phenomenal their achievement is unprecedented but just you know nice draws at good times have helped and you always need that if you look at any player who who comes through singles or doubles they they get some nice draws and you know i know the first one that they played um the first one they played was surbiton and in the first round they played a couple of singles players uh stefan kozloff and dennis kudler and kozloff was injured uh when he played and kudler was still in the singles and i don't think and i know that day because it had rained the previous day they were going to have to play two doubles and i never thought that kudler was going to fancy playing two a singles and then two doubles before the next day he would have to play doubles again and hmm. you know a couple of times in in tie breaks they've you know had a little bit of luck they've, they've also been bad patches Wimbledon nothing really fell for them that day um start of this American trip wasn't that great um but then they've refound it so it's always a case especially in doubles you need a bit of rubber the green and to get to know each other as a pair and on top of that yeah they complement each other well as a pair um I was also looking at their schedule and I mean, when was the last time they've been home? Um, <laughs> not since the summer. Henry, I asked Henry the other day. Henry, I think, has spent ten days at home in the whole of two thousand and twenty-two. Good lord! Um, yeah, because he was in America. I mean, his girlfriend's American, so he tends to go to America a fair bit anyway. Right. He plays a lot of tournaments there, and if if he's got a week off, generally uh, or a couple of weeks off, he'll he'll at the start of the year he went to America, but. They've pretty much played all the way through, yeah. I mean, they've been in America for four months. Mm. And then I think they've got... They're in, they're in Portugal this week for the last tournament of the year. Um, and then they've got a week off where they'll go home. And then we start pre-season, which will be in London for two weeks. <laughs> then it's Christmas. Um, Julian's girlfriend is a tennis player. is Katie Streznikova, and she's Slovakian. So Julian is going to... Um, Slovakia for Christmas. Henry's girlfriend is coming over here, but then they'll have to set off if they get into the Australian Open and the tournaments around it. They'll have to set off for those tournaments on about the thirtieth of uh, December, maybe. <laughs> so they're probably only looking at 
another maybe another 10 days at home i mean it it's one of those things where like you know i travel a lot for work at the moment and uh, people say oh you're so lucky to do so much travel and it's like well and i imagine it's similar for tennis players it's like well no because what it actually means is that like you're working long hours away from home and it's just like working in a different place it's not like you're on holiday like you just happen to be away and I imagine it's quite similar for players because it's not like you're doing much hanging out doing sweet FA. There's none of that. You know, a lot of the times, a hell of a lot of the times, you don't see anywhere of the place where you're going, especially as doubles because doubles obviously follow singles. So you kind of, you kind of practice in in the middle of the day and then you're going to get the, you know, you're probably going to get, if you're lucky, if you get on before five o'clock at the start of the week up until sort of Thursday, Friday, and then you're going to finish. By the time you finished at 7, showered, got back to the, the hotel, it's 8.30, you're going to get some dinner, and, you know, then you're back in the room. So you don't really see anything, to be honest. And, there, you know, there are some which which you will, you know. I imagine, you know, Australia would be different if they get to go there. Imagine New York's different. But I know this year when some somebody had said to me, one of the singles players who I know had said that he loves Wimbledon, because you 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 get you're going out for dinner a lot with the other guys. You've seen a lot of people you haven't seen. I didn't experience any of that this year with with the doubles play with the doubles. I was I was eating Nando's takeaway in my hotel room at ten o'clock every night. Because by the time you'd left, you, you were basically getting the only practice you could get as a doubles pair was when all the singles players had practiced and gone on. So you were looking at kind of a five thirty to seven thirty type of practice slot. Um, so you're not really, it's, you know, you're traveling, but that's really what you're doing. You're traveling. You're not mm. seeing much. Yeah. In terms of like Australia in the season beyond, what is the ranking cut off and, and what does the sort of ranking they're at now actually change, if anything? Because I know a lot of the tour events are quite low ranking for doubles to get in because you also have singles players kicking around in smaller It's draws. not an exact science. Basically to get it, the slams, the average... Or what would usually get you in, not the average, what would usually get you in is a combined ranking of 140. So 70 each if you're a pair or 60 or sixty and an 80 or something like that. So um, 140 combined ranking would generally get you in the slams. So there at the minute, they're 150 with this tournament to go. I think final or maybe semi would get them into... But uh, into one forty combined, uh, but obviously they're intending on winning it. Uh, it's different this week. It's on clay. They haven't played. I don't think either of them have even played. They're definitely not played doubles on clay all year. I don't think either of them have played on clay at all in about two and a half years. Mm. Um. So. Um. But yeah. So that's for the Australian Open. Uh. For the for the slams. But again, this is the strange thing about doubles is that. And, and any tennis, really, you're more likely to get in the slams because it's a bigger draw. So mm. then when it comes to the 250s, that then depends how many there are in a week. If you've got three 250s, you're probably looking at 45 combined. Uh, no, not combined, 45 each, sorry. So 90 combined. Mm. For the Masters, which is a bigger draw, it's a, uh, a 32 draw, you're probably looking at about 60 combined I'd say I mean it's not it's not easy no no a bit more sorry I'm going wrong with you're 30, probably looking it's, at it's, uh, 120 combined yeah 120 110 ish combined um, mm. 
So the, the presumably the feeling at the moment is punting on Australia, and I mean presumably there's a bit of a challenger circuit pre-Australian Open if if they could... yeah there is, but there's also some two fifties. I think they're hoping to get in two fifties. There's one in India, which is probably going to be slight. The cut will be slightly lower than Australia. Ideally, what they want to do is to go to Australia. There's I think there's two weeks of there's two two fifties in a row. Yeah, Adelaide, um, and they're both in Adelaide as well. Yeah, but I think there's also one in Auckland. Yeah, I think. Um, but the feeling is that India will be the weakest. Uh, mm. So I think the broad plan is to go to India, then the second one in Adelaide, and then Aussie Open. Mm. Um, but um, it's it's difficult. It gets difficult now because then, even if they get in the Aussie Open, and unless they can have a real, you know, win three or four matches there. They're probably still looking at going back to challenges for at least a couple of weeks, yeah. um, because, because of how the rankings work. Because of the entry, because your entry ranking is like what six weeks before the tournament, right? So there's yeah, a yeah. lag on, on your yeah. pickup in ranking. But mm. also, like you know, you see a lot of guys like in challenges, especially in Europe, you get a lot of guys who are ranked 70, 65, 60 playing the challenges because they're not getting into much else. Mm. Well, it's nothing if not exciting, Calvin. It's, it's um, you know, you must take some credit and also huge credit to, to Henry and Julian because they've they've done a great job and it's been fun for us having a, a very you know a little bit of a dog in the fight and watching watching their story and um, yeah, when they're Australian Open champions, hopefully they'll uh, give us the first big <laughs> big podcast interview. That'd be uh, ideal. Are they off to Saudi Arabia as well then? <laughs> uh, the offer the offer hasn't come in yet. <laughs> <laughs> But but the price the price the price of flights to Australia at the minute they might have to um, <laughs> but the, the, the morals might have to go out the window just to afford those because they're not cheap. Yeah, it's especially going out like if you once you wait until like the seventh because I've been looking at Australian flight prices really recently a lot and basically once you get past like the sixth or seventh of January they like there's just this huge drop off in price and it gets a lot easier and you can do it for like fifteen hundred quid return. But anything around Christmas and New Year just massively penalises you. So. It's the problem is that, yeah, I mean, the problem is, you know, if you, if you know you're going, you can get them. The problem is at the minute they don't know if they're going. Yeah. And that's that, you know, so they're looking at the prices all the time and thinking they, they could do with something. But, um, you, you know, that they, they won't. They'll know at the end of this week. That's the thing. Hmm. Or they'll they'll have a clue. And then they'll have to make, if they're not definitely in there, they're going to have to make a decision whether to take a punt on it. I um when I went to Australia for the Australian Open, I uh I took flights that I think I managed to find for like six hundred quid for like ultimate bargain basement hunting, and it was a truly terrible journey. Like, what was so uh, bad about it? Uh, well, so the whole thing took about thirty five hours, which in itself isn't great, but yeah. there was a ten hour layover in Ho Chi Minh domestic flights, and I kept like just trying to sleep in like the domestic arrivals area or departure area. Which was obviously pretty um, scary. So, did, did you do an internal flight in Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. So, I flew into <laughs> Vietnam, did a flight down, and then had 10 hours, sorry, 10 hour wait in Vietnam to get the domestic flight and then came right. from there to Australia. And then it was the year where um, Murray was kind of coming back and they announced while I was traveling that he was going to play that practice match with Djokovic. So, I literally took my suitcase straight to the. Um, to the tournament to go and watch that and was working straight away so yeah pretty uh pretty grim times well i can i can confirm my flight is not well touch wood <laughs> it's not quite as complicated as that i think i'm doing frankfurt and then singapore and it's on a lufthansa code share i'm not delighted about flying lufthansa 
Singapore's a lovely airport. Though. It's lovely. I'm going to be there for all of an hour. Um, yeah. I went oh. via I went via Singapore for the Olympics as well, and it was. I'll tell you what was really weird about it was I'd been in Beijing, you know, for three weeks in the pretty horrible conditions, and also like minus ten to minus twenty, depending on where you were. And I so I like got on the plane, you know, had been in these conditions for however long, and then I got off in Singapore Airport in February. And it was like 95% humidity and 28 degrees outside. And it was midnight. And I was just like, this is this is the most intense switch in temperature I think I've ever had to go through. It was, um, yeah, it was I'm sure you soothed yourself by a trip to the Butterfly Garden or something. Uh, I literally, I was, again, only there for about three hours. And I hadn't really seen any good food for three weeks. So I went and found like the nicest restaurant I could and I just ordered a lot of vegetables. Um, and it was, yeah, it was actually really nice. <laughs> um, but then, uh, yeah, I, and actually I'm converted to Singapore Airways. So I kind of hoped I could go Singapore, but um, I'm going Lufthansa code share instead. So anyway, I shouldn't complain. I'm going to my first Australian Open. Got my visa now, so they have to let me in, I think. Let's move on, shall we? George mentioned Saudi Arabia and... Um, now seems like as good a time as any to talk a bit about Saudi Arabia because we've had an email from a listener. Um, you can always get in touch on email on lovetennispod at gmail.com. Just send us an email. Um, let me know who you are, where you're from, and um, what you want to talk about, and we will do our best to get it on air and have a chat about it. Um, this one is from a friend of the pod, uh, Danny Rogers, who uh, plays tennis down in Dulwich and who works in London and is a very regular listener and also, um, uh, yeah, a friend of the pod. That's the best way to describe him, I think. Anyway, he wanted to talk about um, Cam Norrie going to Saudi Arabia, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago on the pod. He's going to play the Deerya Cup um, in... Uh, it's not in... It is in Riyadh, isn't it? But it's in Diria, which is this kind of made-up place. Um, anyway, the, the point is, he's getting paid an awful lot of money to go and play in what has been described as a sports-washing jamboree. Um, Danny says, uh, Calvin's response was that Norrie was accepting money from a corrupt regime, whereas Russian players, being private contractors, have nothing to do with the regime with which with which we as a country have issues. Whereas I, whereas I agree that Norrie is indeed being unethical and accepting the Saudi dollar, I'm not sure it's fair to say that there's no ethical consideration in allowing Russian players to compete at a Grand Slam. After all, by allowing them to play, the AELTC and the LTA, the All England Club that is, would be effectively giving Russian citizens quite a large amount of prize money, even to compete in the first round, and yet British businesses are currently told to boycott any business dealings or dealings with wealthy Russian citizens because of the war in Ukraine. Therefore, there is a similarity in the All England striking such commercial deal with a Russian star player. Surely I'm right in saying that these players are Russian citizens, such as Medvedev, Rublev, Hatchinoff, they are. Um, it's an interesting ethical question, and I'm sure one that will continue to run. Um, Calvin, what do you think? Are they completely different situations in your in your eyes? I th- I think they are completely different because there's as as um, is it Danny? A uh, Danny, yeah, yeah. As Danny pointed out that we basically the UK stopped all big Russian money taking anything out of the UK, but they stopped the oligarch. They they froze the assets of the oligarchs. That was different because they were directly linked to Putin. That was a specific reason if you were a russian person working in britain you weren't your money wasn't withheld and if you were a self-employed person working in britain which is what the tennis players would have been 
their money wasn't that, that that was perfectly fine you could work as a russian in britain during that time there was nothing to stop you doing that it was specifically the oligarchs money and the assets were frozen on top of that again we come to it that the tennis players were they, they didn't have any direct links to putin and they were mostly well, as far as we know they were all opposed to what putin was doing and they also said that they would play without taking any prize money and still weren't allowed to play mm. whereas cam norrie and again, I, f I feel I feel a bit bad at this because I, I I don't it's the only time I've ever criticised Cam Norrie, and I do like Cam, and I I like everything about him, but I think this is a, an error of judgment. Basically, this is completely different because he's just choosing the the Russian players had no choice, whereas Cam is just choosing to take money off a despot, brutal regime, mm. and that's what it, that is what he is doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the important um, delineation to make as well. And I had to do it a lot. I mentioned being in Beijing for the Olympics and, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and a Chinese regime is, you know, committing human rights abuses left, right and centre. It's an incredibly corrupt regime um, and an incredibly brutal one. And I don't think the Olympics should have been there at all. But it's, it's very important when you're talking about this and when you're thinking about it to kind of delineate the Chinese regime from the Chinese people and sometimes actions that you make against a state and a government will inadvertently, as a consequence, hurt the people who are governed by that state or regime. But when it comes to the way we think about it, the way we talk about it, if there are ways of helping those people or, you know, working with those people or giving those people the basic rights that they deserve, such as the right to work or the right to do business, then, and you can do that without benefiting the state, then I think we should. Now, George, I think the point that, that you wanted to make was that the, the kind of taxation point, right? That um, the the money that would have been paid to the Russian players, albeit that they would have donated to charity, they say, would have still have been taxed in Russia or would have been eligible to be taxed in Russia? Well, I mean, I, to be honest, I was more asking the question. I was just trying to get into the headspace of Wimbledon. I, as Calvin pointed out, though, I, th I imagine a few of the Russian lads are based in Monte Carlo, so probably aren't paying any tax full stop. But I was thinking a little further down the food chain probably might have been the case that it would go through that. But I, I personally found it very interesting to hear how players are paid at tournaments <laughs> from Calvin, which we, for not to bore you all with it, we, we had a quite a monotonous discussion around... Uh, well, the, I know. I mean, you say it's monotonous. You say it's monotonous. I, I found it interesting, but I yeah, fear yeah. others might find it less. I mean, to, 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 to sum it up, Calvin, basically, you sort of once you've lost, or if you win the tournament, you go in and and sort of agree how much you're getting paid. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. Basically, what happens? I know this is what happens at Wimbledon, and I assume it's the same as what happens at, at all the ATP events. Is that you have basically when you have your rackets restrung for example that goes through the tournament so you hand your rackets and you take them back they keep a record on how many rackets you've had restrung or customized through the people there um, and they take that out of your prize money if you've had any code violations or that kind of thing that comes out of your prize money so once you're out you have to go to the referee and basically sign off on on the prize money that you should be receiving say like mm. i've had 25 rackets restrung this week and i've had two code violations um i i would find it quite amusing if if like you know nick kyrgios went out first round but you know had eight code violations along the way and and <laughs> went along to the referee's office and they went 
Actually, you owe us a bit of cash here, Nick. <laughs> you can't have eight card value. You can only have three. Oh, that's true. <laughs> You're yeah. out of the tournament then. So. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it w- wouldn't surprise me if that has occurred. But um, Do yeah, we- I, I don't think there would have been any problem. And I'll say also on, on that as well. I I don't think any of us would have any problems with any Saudi Arabian people coming to work, work and take money in Britain. Hmm. And that that's that's the differentiation. This is they're completely different and. This is specifically taking money from despot, horrid regimes and being a member, like you said, James, being a part of the people who they rule over. Mm. (laughs) At risk of dragging this out any further. But the the code violation point is actually quite an interesting one, Calvin, isn't it? Because in terms of players signing up, when they're leaving, I mean, like Wimbledon quite often don't release who's been fined once. And I'm sure, sorry, they don't release who's been fined until after, the, you know, the tournament referees gone through and kind of assessed the incidents and decided whether they should be fined. But surely quite often people have signed out the tournament long before their code violations. Are they then just chased up for final bits of cash like when I they assume, leave? I, I don't know. I assume they know already before they're released. But um... they yeah, just a... they, they but... sit on them for ages, don't they? But you get a few incidents that happen when players like leaving tour. I'm thinking of like Mladenovic here the other year when she mm. was fined £10,000 because of a row over booking a cab out of Wimbledon when yeah. she'd been eliminated. That fine presumably came after she'd signed out of the tournament. Right, and... maybe, yeah. I'm not sure I, now. But... I assume, and I mean, we're basically getting into some quite complicated conjecture here, <laughs> but um, like, I assume it's like a pre-authorization and you, know, you sort of sign it conditional conditionally upon certain things or the balance maybe isn't settled i don't know maybe the prize money's not paid out until the end of the tournament and they there, there is off. some some of the tournaments are slightly different how they do it like i know the australian open for tax reasons allow a certain amount of restrings that they pay you less money in prize money they pay the players less money but they give i think it's 15 free rackets a day or five five free rackets a day you can get so whereas at Wimbledon you pay for every racket that you have restrung. Um yeah. I mean whereas, that yeah that that is like a that'll be an accounting thing, won't it? Because yeah, different and rates I think they pay and... they pay more per DM as well. Per DM is what the, the tournament gives you for uh, accommodation right. uh, while you're there, and I think they pay more of that, but the prize money is less. I so, see. Okay. The happy slam kicking in again. Yeah. The happy tax efficient slam. Um Anyway, the, the Diria Cup in Saudi Arabia is not the happy slam. Uh, they've added Alexander Zverev to their um, player list this week, which, I mean, it's not going to make anyone hate the tournament more, but can't imagine it's going to make many people uh, hate the tournament less. Um, he sort of made the same point, albeit it was an interview with the official YouTube channel of the tournament, but he, I think, kind of tried to preempt criticism uh, by saying, I'm, I'm just looking forward to being back on tour and to getting matches, of course. You don't want your first event to be back in Australia because then you feel like, okay, you may be physically fit physically, you may be in the shape of your life, but you haven't played matches in seven months. It's a different fitness level. It's still a different mental stress. And of course, who could not sympathise with Alexander Zverev because there are no other tournaments before the Australian Open. Like, literally, it's dear your cup or you go in cold. There's there's no 250 in Pune. There's, there, there certainly aren't two 250s in Adelaide. Um, there's no 250 in Auckland either, so he can't play any of those tournaments. He can't play for his country at the United Cup. I actually don't know if they've qualified. That might be unfair. George? Had a rang up Rafa as well, got on this exhibition tour in South America. Had a... uh, no, but Rafa's too tired. They're too busy and tired to travel and play tournaments during the off-season. It, it, 
sort of. We'll come on to that later. Well, speaking of Rafa Nadal, we might as well get into it. I'm hesitant to uh, bring up something I tweeted and got an enormous amount of abuse about, but um, I muted this tweet long ago, so I've actually just opened it again to make sure what I said, and there's a load of other abuse that I um, <laughs> I hadn't hadn't previously read, so that's that's really good, actually. It's, I muted this tweet to preserve my, uh, preserve my mental health, and I've had to open it up again. This is the kind of lengths we go to on the Love Tennis Podcast to, you know, whore ourselves out. Um, I tweeted thus, tennis players, colon, i.e. tennis players are saying, the season's too long, we're exhausted, we can't possibly play all these different tournaments. Also tennis players, we're going on a two-week exhibition tour during the off-season. As I mentioned, and as George mentioned before the break, Rafa Nadal is on an exhibition tour of South America with Casper Ruud, which is happened, well, it took place at the same time as the Davis Cup Finals. And unfortunately, we're talking about this before we're talking about Davis Cup Finals, but I'm afraid that is the nature of tennis at the moment um i mean I've, i don't know how much more there is to say but i wanted to mention it anyway george it, mark, mark petchy replied to it and made me laugh by saying tis the season of wheelbarrows um which i think probably pretty much sums it up i mean south america doesn't have many massive tour- tournaments as we said before and i'm sure rafa and casper are getting paid an absolute fortune to do it yeah and i think you know the other argument you'll kind of hear around this sort of season is that the they're taking the sport to somewhere it's not been to before, but it's quite rare for these lot to actually. Maybe Rude does it a bit more than other people, but you know there are there are events that go on over in South America. Nat Rafa could turn up to an ATP Challenger, I'm sure, in Bogota or something if he. Well, I mean, he could have played Rio, like if you know, Rio, if, yeah. play, um, and you know, he has done in the past, I suppose. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 it's obviously very hypocritical. I don't particularly blame them for going off and doing this sort of big event. You know, they're not going to some terrible murderous society and taking money from a regime. And, you know, they are at the end of the day trying to make a, a buck or whatever. So that's up to them. But yeah, it, it does really invalidate this whole personal and fair discussion, I think, around the calendar quite often. And I'm not saying an exhibition is as physically. Uh, demanding as a tour event or whatever and I'm sure they can be a little bit more relaxed about it but it, it yeah it doesn't really give credence to serious uh, calendar system issues as we've again talked about in previous weeks mm. also um, I realised that the reason it one of the reasons that that tweet attracted quite so many uh, what's the word other Hates- accounts haters oh. is one word um unusual accounts is maybe the best way i'm going to put it is because it was tweet it was retweeted by the most unusual uh tennis twitter account of all um i'm not going to name him because i don't need to because you both know who i'm talking about realistically um anyway <laughs> we'll move on and talk about what we should have been talking about uh, all week last week but frankly it was a bit of a non-event and it was the davis cup finals um canada came through victorious denis shapovlov and felix Auger-Aliassime beating uh, Tanasi Kokonakis and Alex de Manoa in the finals, so they didn't even have to play doubles. Um, Calvin, I feel like we talk about Felix and to a slightly lesser extent Dennis a huge amount on this podcast. Um, Felix obviously had a brilliant end to the year, clearly just you know in a really good moment as uh, football managers would say, but he's also had a terrific year in team tennis. He's won the ATP Cup, he's won the Labour Cup, and now he's won the Davis Cup. 
Um, I mean, just to give you an idea who's beaten in the Davis Cup, by the way, uh, Alcaraz, Kekmanovic, Oscar Otter, less impressive, um, Dumanur and Musetti, and he also played three doubles matches and won all three of them. I mean, you know, it's not a grand slam, but it feels like a pretty good springboard, doesn't it? Yeah, he's, he's been pivotal in all those wins as well. It's not like he's just sort of, you know, been scouring, you know, hovering around. He beat Djokovic in Labour Cup. Hmm. Um, and the yeah, ATP Cup, by the way, he beat Zverev, Nori and Bautista Agut, which is pretty Yeah, handy. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant tennis player. I, I just really hope he can take the, make the next step now and hmm. start racking up the slams. Um, it's there for him if he, if he, you know, if he, if he can put his mind to it, and if he can make the minor improvements he needs, then he's going to be winning more than one. I would say. There's the old cliche in football that you either do want the international break to come or you don't want the international break to come. And I kind of get the feeling Felix would really rather a slam was happening next <laughs> week rather than going into the off season. Now, I mean, how hard is it to? kind of keep that momentum going through the off-season, Calvin? Do you kind of have to completely separate it? Or are you trying to... Would you keep... Well, well with Julian and Henry next year, will you be... How will you be trying to foster that form going into next season when you have a bit of a break? Well, he's to... only given them one week off, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a strange one, you know. I mean, in in, in sort of... In actuality, it's it's what you know. It's one week and probably about three weeks without tournaments, which you would normally do anyway. But it, it just feels more than that. Uh, it feels like you've drawn a line and starting a new one, I suppose. So you never, you know, it's it, it'll be interesting to see how all the players respond. Um, historically, the people, the players who've done well at the end of one year haven't necessarily carried it on straight into another. Mm. That's not. Uh, always have and, and like I say being that it's you know that there's less time between say the first American hardcore tournament and the US Open than there is sorry there's less time now than there is between between now and the Australian Open than there is be- between the first US hardcore tournament and the US Open so right, yeah okay you, you know so it, that's that's a strange dynamic of it because we don't really have you know we don't really have a close season no. You know, close season in other sports is that you're train. You know, you're doing a a six week training block, as I just said. With you know, with the lads who I coach, it's two weeks. They'll have mm. one week off and then two weeks training. I I think this might have been something that you told me, Calvin. But I, someone's saying that there are quite a few players on tour who actually have a sort of pre season quote unquote after the Australian Open and take a couple of weeks off and then do a, a block ahead of the Sunshine Swing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's I've known that happen. Um, a couple of the British players do that. Um, I think Evo tends to do a bit of that. Because um, just because there's a still, bigger gap. Yeah, but you do still sort of call this the close season just because there's nothing to play in. Yeah. Uh, you don't have any options of other than if you're doing exhibitions. Then, But it is, it is interesting because if you look at it, I mean, the Australian Open is on, I think, the 16th of January. Like, we've kind of, because we've not had a normal Australian Open for three years, I'd kind of forgotten that if you did take an off-season you know, at this time of year, you sort of have to start up again, like, next week, because it's, you know, most top players want six weeks before a slam, at least. I mean, you if you think about six weeks before Wimbledon, like, oh, I guess Wimbledon's a bad example, but as you say, Calvin, six weeks before the US Open, you're already into your hardcore, mat, like, tournaments. You're, you're, you're pretty much starting there. So it is quite a condensed run to the Australian Open. So I imagine 
a decent number of players might look at it. If that was what they were doing, and they thought, well, a good way to start that is going to South America and play some exhibitions, then fine, but it's obviously not necessarily the reality. I'm not going to get dragged into that again. Um, George, talk to me about Felix and Dennis, and they've both played really well for their country over the years. I mean, probably the first that anybody heard of Dennis Shapovalov in Britain was when he got DQ'd from a Davis Cup match for pinging a ball into an umpire's face. Is that against Carl Edmund? Have I got that right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but, but since then, he has more than rehabilitated. Well, he's still quite angry, but he's not done that in a while. So um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's got better, and he's had some brilliant results on the court, you know, under the Canadian flag. Yeah, I mean, I'd say Shapovalov's become a bit of a forgotten man in many ways this year. It feels to me like, you know, the start of the year, we were really probably hoping we'd have both of them in the top 10. Uh, I'm not, I can't actually remember where Dennis is ranked now. I imagine still just about top 20 would be. Yeah, yeah, I think 18, I think. Um, You know, so it's not been such a bad season that it's been catastrophic, but, you know, he's a guy who's so talented and got so many great weapons. It's just making these final steps is difficult. And, you know, I like to think that the two of them will push each other on and that was always the dynamic I was kind of hoping for with these two because it's nice when you have two guys from the same country being quite high up pushing each other but Dennis has to uh, has to do some catching up I think Felix is really starting to talk, turn the corner I, I hope anyway we've said that a few times before about players and it's totally not materialised but I'm feeling quite good about Felix all of a sudden um, Yeah Felix I'm the same George Felix I think is is close Dennis, I've got serious doubts about. Um, just in terms of the season he's had, I think he's got a lot of growing up to do. Like just emotionally and mentally, like you hear him talk sometimes, and like that, just that nonsense about his girlfriend not being able to practice at Queens when there was no actual reason why she should have been able to practice at Queens. He was sort of came across like a bit like a spoiled child there. And mm. um, I also at Wimbledon this year, I might have been sat. Uh, outside at the restaurant in a particularly non-busy time of the day and he came and sat on the next table to me and was having a conversation on the phone and I might have overheard him talking about it seemed he was talking about his his coaching situation or lack thereof and his tennis and it didn't fill me with confidence that he's ready to make a step to being a serious tennis player the sort of things he was saying Um, Mm. I, I won't go into what he was saying but um yeah, it's not really. It was it, if I was coaching a player, it wouldn't have been what I would be wanting them to be saying. I think you know if we're looking at his year as well. I mean, he started the year pretty strong. Like if you looked at him and Felix, Felix actually did okay as well. But you know, they obviously won that ATP Cup together, and then he played, you know, beat Zverev really comfortably at the Australian Open, and had that kind of five-set thriller with Nadal that he actually probably should have won that day really like he was playing good enough stuff to win that match and Rafa was looking pretty pretty wounded um, and then it kind of nose dive from there and you know I, I I do hope that there'll be a spring back to him because he's one of my favourite players to watch by a long way you know in terms of what he's got he's got that kind of backhand jumping backhand deep defensive backhand on a one hand I've always yeah, yeah but you say that though George you say that about that backhand that backhand is crap 
Yeah, but, but it's, it's like pretty. it looks it's pretty flashy. and fun, isn't it? It's flashy, yeah. yeah but it's brilliant. I'm not it's brilliant it's brilliant when he when he misses he makes one and misses seven. <laughs> like, it's... But it's fun. This is Calvin Killjoy here. You know, it's still really <laughs> fun, it's isn't it? It's not going to win. It's not. He's not going to win. He's not going to win proper matches with that backhand. It's nonsense. It's an absolute mm. nonsense. But it is fun, if nothing else. <laughs> fun for his opponents. Three points all over the shop. <laughs> Give him a high backhand, he'll go for that rubbish jump backhand that he thinks is great. <laughs> it's actually interesting because I think um, I was talking to someone, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to, but telling me about like uh, a game plan against players like Dennis. And they're like, and funnily enough, the backhand didn't really come up. I think there are quite a lot of other ways to beat him. Like, I think there are lots of players out there who aren't scared of Dennis Shapovalov. And when you combine that with what we've talked about, about his kind of mental weaknesses, or not weakness is the wrong word, but, you know, he's not the coolest of characters in the world. I don't think even he would um, necessarily say that he is. I think when you combine those things, it, it makes matches 5% harder to win. When the guy on the other side of the net is going, well, I think I, think I should probably be winning this match. Like, it, it, it gives you less. Yeah, and, yeah. There's... I just want to say on that backhand, how, in, how, he's been on the scene now. How long has he been on the scene? About five years, would you say? Sure. Yes. He had his big 17-year-old breakthrough beating rapidly. Right. So how many of those jump backhands have you seen him hit? Uh, you know, Just give me a ballpark. <laughs> how, how many have you seen him hit in that amount of time? Uh, that is a, that is a question. I, I have no answer to. Third, would you say 30? And how how many good ones have you seen him hit? I, the, the, I mean that that oh, is great. I just I'm, I reckon less than three. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love this random maths that of shots I've apparently seen. Uh, but that's was, indicative of it. It's like James said. No, I tell you what the players think. Right, they think he's flashy and he'll beat himself. That mm. that that's the way that they think about. It. They think right, just stay solid. He'll do something stupid, like and he always does. And you know the, the play, players aren't worried about the best players aren't worried about guys who. They they don't think about and I bang on about this a lot and I know I sound like a bit of a broken record. You don't judge a player by their top level. You judge a player by their middle and their bottom levels. And Je Dennis Shapovalov's top level is phenomenal. But the players don't think they think yeah I'll play him fifteen times he'll beat me once. Will anyone be able to change that in him? Because if, you know if you've got well, this is what I was saying. What what I overheard him saying to either a prospective coach or. A psychologist, or I don't think it was a psychologist. He wouldn't have been doing it so openly. But whoever he was talking to, when I overheard him, then my my thinking is that he doesn't think that that is something that needs changing. And you know, Jamie Delgado and um, wasn't there and not there for very long. Um, and I'm reasonably sure that that was a, a personality clash, if nothing else. Um, but <laughs> like, you don't have big personality clashes with coaches that only last a month if. If there's not something a bit defective going on in that relationship, I, I think he's got some growing up to do. That's that's my instinct. And look, he's just won a Davis Cup for his country. Like you know, there are a lot of positives here. And all right, he's playing number two singles, which there aren't many better number two singles players in the world than than Denis Shapovalov by the nature of the strength and depth that Canada have. Um, but nevertheless. He still has work to do. I mean, if I'm actually looking at his uh, his record at the Davis Cup Finals, he lost to Sonego in the semis. He lost to Struff in the groups against Germany. Like, 
they're both matches that someone like Denis Shapovalov should probably be winning. And he played well and beat Kokonakis in the final, at least. He doesn't have any... I can't remember. I might be getting this wrong. He doesn't have any big wins in, in big tournaments. George? Uh, he beat, well, I'd say, well, you'll, you'll say he's not a big win. I'd say Zverev is a big win at the Australian Open. The way no, Zverev played in not, Slam. Not the way that, yeah, the way Zverev's played in Slam. You know, all the others have got like, you know, all the, they've got, a they've either won a big tournament or they've got some big wins. And you look at when Murray was coming through. Murray, even before he won Slams, Murray was beating Djokovic at Slams, beating Federer at Slams, beating uh, Nadal. I don't think I actually don't know if he's ever beaten a Dallas Slam. I don't think he has. Yeah, no, he's no, but terrible. You know, the guy, you know, beating Roddick at Slams, that kind of thing. Whereas even at Masters series, I don't, yeah, just don't remember him beating. I don't think. Well, he's never beat Djokovic. I don't think he's ever beaten Nadal. He's beaten Nadal twice. Yeah, his big breakthrough fans. win was Nadal. Yeah. Oh, he, I <laughs> do remember Masters that. Yeah, well. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, he won the Paris he, Masters, he, didn't he? Was... He, be, he beat Nadal on clay like this year, but I'm pretty sure it was Nadal's first match in goodness knows how long, and he wasn't fit. Um, and he just had, you know, yeah. I'm struggling. I mean, I'm looking at his wins against top 10 players. It's interesting that three of his 11 wins against top 10 players have come in team tournaments. Like he beat Zverev in an ATP Cup, he beat. Um, Tsitsipas in an ATP Cup like there's out there but maybe that's the kind of tournament that focuses him I don't know like he's the kind of guy who maybe needs a bit a bit of accountability I was just going to say as well I mean like we talk about him still being top 20 now but got a fair amount of points that will probably drop off from Australia and ATP Cup I'd guess Mm. at the start of next year that makes him in a bit of a perilous position and you know we were talking about Calvin's ranking challenges with Henry and Julian there's something to be said about when you're ranked pretty highly you're guaranteed not to have well not guaranteed but you're likely less likely to have really bad first and second round draws and that can kind of maintain you for quite a long time but if your form's bad and you drop out of seeding positions and you start having to go into tournaments unseeded and you're not playing well and you're drawing top guys that's that's can be a bit of a recipe for a a downward spiral so you want to arrest that pretty quickly and have a good run out there mm. um i've now that we've annoyed all of our canadian listeners by <laughs> slagging off denis shapovalov should we annoy all our american listeners by slagging off their davis cup team i think we shall um it, this is maybe my favorite story of the week i don't know about favorite it, it's unpleasant in some ways but um as one of my co-workers would say there's a lot of tea here uh, to be drunk uh, so it's time to spill it Basically, uh, the Americans lost in the quarterfinals uh, to Italy, uh, and it came down to a decisive doubles match after Francis Tiafoe lost to Lorenzo Sanego, and then Taylor Fritz beat Lorenzo Mazzetti. Um, came down to a crucial doubles match. Italy have got an established pair in Davis Cup of Bolelli and Fanini. Uh, Marty Fish had world number two doubles player Rajiv Ram at his disposal, but did not pick him, and instead picked Tommy Paul and Jack Sock, who lost 6-4, 6-4. And needless to say, this went kind of punchy. Um, Rajiv Ram tweeted, how's, everyone th- how's everyone's Thanksgiving going? Uh, shortly after the United States got dumped out, um, Joe Salisbury stuck the result on his Instagram and said, if only the USA had someone better for doubles, oh wait, thinking emoji, covering of eyes emoji. Um, I think that's technically see no evil, that emoji, by the way. It's just uh, not many people know that. 
Um, Marty Fish defended his selection, said we've got a lot of great players that play for US. Rajiv is one of them. He wasn't on the team this year, and that's my choice. This is the team that I put on the court, so if anyone has an issue with that, that's on me. Um, Rajiv has played, and he's played well. He's played for us a few times with Jack, and this is a team that I was excited to see. Jack and Francis are also a phenomenal team. They've played and beaten some really good teams in competitions as well, so we had a lot of options. This was the team we went with today, but if Rajiv was here or not, those guys are going to win today. They played well, and they're too good. Um, I mean, Calvin, you, you coach your good doubles team, and um, well, ha- one day they may be subject to these kind of selection decisions. Who knows? But, I mean, tennis is a results business, and if you pick a team and they lose, you're, you're going to get some flack for it. Um, my understanding is that it was Jack Sock who chose his doubles partner. Um, that is the feeling within the players, and I think that's pretty well sourced. Um, and it was his decision. I think Marty Fisher's kind of, I don't know how much Marty Fish backed it, but I think that might have been, well, obviously he did back it, but he's he's either covering it up or he entirely agreed with it. It was an absolutely rotten decision, mm. an absolute shocker. And Marty Fish coming out, that that's just waffle that he's come out with at the end. You've got to own it. If you want to pick that team, that's fair enough. Pick whoever you want or give the backing for whoever you want. But you've got to come out and go, we picked the wrong team. Mm. Coming out with, if 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 um if Rajiv would have been here, then they'd have won anyway. That's just absolute nonsense. Mm. You've got someone as good as Rajiv Ram playing, somebody and a pairing who who just won two matches, um, and played. You know they beat Murray and Salisbury. Mm. You know apart from anything else, Tommy Paul's not that good a doubles player. Yeah, I mean that—that that was the biggest thing for me. Is like I like Tommy Paul. I think he's a good yeah. player, and he's got—he's got some nice hands and stuff. But he, you know, he's not a great doubles player, is he? Yeah, but you know, I—I I don't know. He's—they've had a, a shocker all around. Mm. They've had an absolute shocker all around. There's two. Also, I look at that team, and I'll say no offense intended, but I am really offending them all. It's not full of high, highly intelligent individuals. <laughs> The, t- the team and the captaincy is not like somebody you'd think, yeah, they're going to make good calls. I'm going to put some Tommy Paul tweets out there because uh, kid kid got fired up on Twitter for a play to him. Um, he said, one of them was, it's cool to see people who aren't will never be Davis Cup captains pretending to be Davis Cup captains on Twitter. Hashtag tweeting from your parents' basement. Um, he also, in one tweet that he's now deleted, he said, you obviously didn't have tennis TV in your parents' basement during Glasgow. Doubles number one or 100. He struggles against singles players ranked 1 to 8,000 singles or doubles, which is pretty darn punchy. I think um, that backs up what I just said about not having anyone of great <laughs> intelligence in there. Also, being Davis Cup captain isn't a meristocracy. Well, you know, it's yeah. like, like, let's, you know, making out that it's something that Marty Fish has earned over a you know, over a long period of managing his way up. He's done mm. that because he used to have a big serve. Like that's the only reason he's Davies Cup captain. Yeah, it's a funny job, isn't it? Um, George, I know you love beef. I do love the beef. I think I think Ram goes that they only took four rather than five players as well. I think that's as weird as anything. Like, why not just... You'd still take the guy just in case, wouldn't you, if you've got kind of the... The squad to play. Well, I'm, I'm. I tell you, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I don't know Rajiv very well, but I've like I've spoken to him a few times, and I got a bit of a feel for him. And you know, if you look at the group they've got: Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafoe, Tommy Paul, Jack Sock. 
Like, and I think Calvin will back this up. Rajiv is quite a different person from those guys. Yeah, like, Rajiv would have, as I just said, well, from what I just said, Rajiv would have tripled the intelligence on that squad. <laughs> but he's also a different character. Like, not only necessarily a different caliber of man, but a different character. Like, some people like these young, this young American group. Some people don't. Like, they're entitled to their opinion, obviously. Um, Rajiv is quite a reserved guy. Like, I know when when they were put together, him and Joe Salisbury, um, and I, I, funny enough, I spoke to, to Henry and Julian about this. Lu, Louis said to them, one of you's got to be kind of the hype man on this team and the guy to pick us up when we're down. And Louis said to Rajiv, we kind of need you to be that guy. And it was difficult because, like, neither of them are naturally that kind of person. And I, I think Louis said something similar to your guys, Calvin. Um, but I can see how, you know, George, you say you might as well take the fifth guy. I, I don't know. I mean, clearly these guys don't like Rajiv Ram, full stop. I, I Yeah, well, I mean, that that's fair enough. But if you're a captain of a team and you've got a guy ranked number three in one of the disciplines and you've got a space in your squad to not take that guy who I don't think is necessarily the bad guy in this situation without knowing the ins and outs of it is a is a big call and and to be honest you know the sort of call if it was a you know as Calvin put it across a meritocracy that you fall on your sword for when you get wrong because you know he's got this badly wrong fish in my opinion he, he's a far superior doubles player to Tommy Ball and you know him and Sock should be one of the best doubles teams out there comfortably I mean that, that's a team that can win you the Davis Cup versus not winning it there's two things I'd say about about it is that the first one is that who do you think the Italians would least would have rather faced hmm. and I'd, I'm pretty certain they'd rather face Tommy Ball on the juice side and Jack Sock um, you know no one wants to play Jack Sock Jack Sock I think Jack Sock's an idiot, but he's a phenomenal doubles player. <laughs> um, but you know he would he would play. But I, I think again he, he you know he 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 won't have necessarily thought that Tommy Paul's a better player than Rajiv Ram. He'll just want to take his mates, and, and that's that's how Jack Sock's mentality is. Um, but secondly, again I'll say it again I I sort of said it earlier, but with all that with with Fish and the players and Tommy Paul saying what he said at the end there, look. You've got to own it. If you make a call like that and you don't get the job done, you've got to own it and you've got to go, yeah, you know, we thought this was the right call, but in hindsight, we should have played Rajiv. You can't be going, you can't be going, oh, we'd have lost anyway. It wouldn't have made any difference. And everybody knows that everybody knows that Rajiv struggles against uh, singles players when he plays them. Like, does he? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not worried. He didn't struggle that much against, well, didn't struggle that much against Andy Murray, did he? Mm. And there aren't many better singles players than Andy Murray. Yeah, I, I think it's funny, isn't it? Because that captaincy role, like you, you get so kind of wrapped up in, like, right, this is the decision we're making, and we're gonna, we're really gonna back this to the hilt. That when you then do lose, it's very difficult to switch that mindset. However, I think it's weird and misguided that Marty Fish came out and said and tried to sort of take responsibility for the defeat by saying you know it's my decision and I'm owning it but then not not say the decision was wrong um but I I suppose if you've got to work with those players you know you've got to work if, if Jack Sock has led that decision and you know has been backed in that decision by his teammates and then the captain has gone yeah all right I'm with you I, I see what you're saying let's do this and then you've got to captain them, them again I can see maybe I mean I think it's weak and I think it's poor leadership but I can see that you might decide that that's the way to go. 
to go with explaining that decision. But be fascinating. I, I can't remember who the US have drawn in uh, qualifiers, but I'd be fascinated to see who they get. The best thing about it, am I right in, a sh- am I right in saying because I didn't see the final? Didn't then Italy go and do the same thing and take out Bellelli? Uh, yeah, but they didn't have to play the final, right? They didn't have to play the, so they could oh, have changed. Oh, right, okay. Because it was 2 I know that we, we'd heard that they'd announced that they were going to play... Um, Berrettini. Berrettini instead. So they did, no, I'm sorry. In the semi-final against Canada, yeah, they pulled out Bellelli and put Berrettini in, and then they lost to Orger Alessi oh, right. and Pospisil. Yeah. So, like, they, they obviously didn't learn from it either then. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Um... I mentioned there that the uh, there are qualifiers to deal with uh, next year. Uh, the United States have drawn Uzbekistan away from home, uh, which you know it's it's not somewhere you want to go on a cold Tuesday night, is it? Um, it's Stoke upon Uzbek. Uh, Great Britain have drawn Colombia away, um, which means they're almost certainly going to be playing on clay uh, in February. Um, Calvin, I I feel like Britain will definitely be favourites in this because. Their top-ranked singles player is Daniel Galan. Uh, they haven't got anyone inside the top 250 uh, beyond that. But uh, Colombia, tough place to go. And tough it's, doubles. It's very tough. They're going to mm. have... I mean, the doubles team are not what they were. Uh, the doubles team now are down at, like, I think they're the mid-20s ranking. Cabal, it's Cabal yeah. and Farrer, isn't it? But they're, they're obviously... Um, they're obviously good on clay. They've won mm. the French Open a few times. Mm. Um, but, they're you know, they're, they're not the force they were. The main problem is... Say they're favourites and probably are, but the the conditions are going to be rough. That's it's going on clay um, at altitude because I assume they'll play in Bogota. Uh, um, hang on, I might. Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Uh, I don't know what the altitude in Bogota Bogota is, but it's quite high. It's, oh, there you go. It's high, yeah. Eight thousand um, feet above sea level. Yeah, that's that's high, isn't it? Yeah, no, that is high. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Very high, yeah. That's, you know, there might be an issue, you know, with who fancies going for that. <laughs> um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be like a, a straight a two week or a week after the Australian Open. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah, see Murray might, going, but that might actually be a blessing think, in disguise. I don't think Murray's going to fancy it. Evo, I don't know what he's Ever Evo loves playing Davis Cup, though. Like, he, like yes, and no, so, no one's going to want to do that, but I think if anyone goes, ever goes. He'll go if he's if he's guaranteed a place in the doubles team. Well, that's the thing, isn't <laughs> 100%, it? 100%, that's what he'll say. Who's going to play doubles? You know, Drapes? Is Drapes going to fancy it? Nos? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. If I were Draper, I'd, I'd try and go, you know. It's how it affects the rest of the season, though, George. Mm. You know, it's it's how, you know, you got you got the running for Indian Wells starts not, look, not long after he, that. He's not played a match for the Britain though, Davis Cup, is he? Yeah, no, that would be quite a good thing to tick off on you. I don't know, Jack, or, but you know, that would be something. I'm I'd... not saying they won't. I'm saying it's not straightforward. It's not like you know, if they were playing America on outdoor hard in California, everyone's going. Mm. But it's who fancies that change of surface going and play on clay at eight thousand feet altitude. Mm. Jeez, maybe uh, maybe Carl Edmund will be fit by then. I saw he was in the pro league. He played pro league, yeah. This week. Uh, he, he won pro league. I think I'm right in saying yeah, yeah. he won pro yeah. league. Um, you would kind of hope so, to be honest, wouldn't you? I mean, like I know he's well, a, yeah, but hope for this. His tennis was staying yeah. at a level where he can win that. Yeah, he but... struggled a bit in the early rounds. Went to a couple of tie breaks, a couple mm. of final set tie breaks. A lot, lot of those games went to juice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. I'd say for you know. 
I'd, I'd say Leon probably grimaced a bit when he saw that come out. Hmm. It's not, um, it's not one that I'd fancy. Um, I mean, I mean, looking looking at the unseeded teams, like I think it's maybe the worst one. Like South Korea would have been a pain in the ass to go to, um, but as you say, not the altitude problem. Uzbekistan, I guess, it's also quite a long way to go. But um, and again, Chile, you're going to play. Know. It's the it's the travel, but you're also going to play on like you know you're probably going to play on hard and yeah, like, it's not altitude. No. It's, uh, it changes a lot. Yeah. You only have to look at. Bolivia's World Cup qualifying record to know yes. what altitude does. Yes, indeed. Uh, George, sorry? I was just going to say, I, I still predict Norrie, Draper and Evans will all go. I think Murray's the only one who actually won't, won't go. They won't all go. They won't all go because one of them's not going to play and no one's going to fancy going there if they're not playing. Yeah, I wonder how far down that will cascade. Like, like, at what point do we start dragging people out of retirement to be the oh, third single player? Leon, Leon's going to use doubles as a bathroom chip to Dan. He'll be like, Dan, you can play doubles this time. No, Dan's not going to go if he's not playing singles. Dan's not going to go if he's not playing singles. I think Leon's got a strong bathroom chip there. No. That's what I mean. I, th- though, I think that's... the strong bathroom chip might be a business class ticket. That That's what I mean, though, where it's going to be difficult. No one's going to fancy that. People are going to want guarantees they're playing if they're if they're going to be in the team yeah it's, it's not easy it'd be fascinating to see who gets picked a little subplot there um i mean i'll be interested to see if rajiv ram <laughs> can you imagine if marty fish gives rajiv ram a call like you know the day after the uh australian open final and says oh mate do you fancy uzbekistan next week yeah be all right like <laughs> I, I i cannot imagine it's like, will you guarantee a plate mm, can't do that mate gotta pick the team night before yeah <laughs> i bet jack sock doesn't fancy it i bet i'd, I'd put money now i bet you jack sock's not in uzbekistan <laughs> I, I can't wait to see this uh oh, i'm not quite excited about this really davis cup final, davis cup qualifying teams and i never thought that'd be the case um any, any sorry, any other good ties? Um, Croatia Austria has lots of plots to it. I mean, because you have Chorich and team there potentially. You know, I mean, come back here. So, like, I mean, Norway Serbia. That you know, that could be Rude versus Djokovic in theory. That that'd be very tasty. Um, just looking down, a few others that have. I mean, it's always tricky because the draw is twelve seeded teams drawn against twelve unseeded teams. So, not many of these are going to be absolute classics. Um, and there's obviously uh, Canada and um, Australia have wild cards into the finals already. Remember, the winner of this goes into the Davis Cup finals. Um, they get in on the basis of having reached the final, and Italy and Spain also have been awarded wild cards straight in, so they don't have to play the qualifiers. Oh, those two wild cards, by the way, are just we think you've got the best players and need you to be there. And they're worried about, like, I mean, look, Canada lost in qualifiers. <laughs> Um, like <laughs> that happened. So, am I right in saying that Britain need to win this game also to host the Davis Cup? Is there a bit of a hanger there on this, or is that just like the earlier stages? Did I? Read you know, that? George, that's a great question that a well-informed journalist will be able to answer. <laughs> if you know any of them, then please let me know. Um, it's it's a good question. I mean, they got in. They got in automatically, you know, this time on the, well, like, you know, like the women got into Billie Jean Cup finals, Billie Jean King Cup finals, despite having lost in qualifiers. Um, I don't know is the, is the honest answer. I'm sorry not to be more up to speed on that. I will find out. Ask me again next week when I've been on holiday for 10 days and then I'll definitely know. Um, 
very finally, I want to mention something, and we're not going to just have time to discuss it, and there's actually not a lot to add to it, but it's important to mention it. Um, a story that people will have perhaps been aware of um, is a series of allegations that have been raised uh, against the president of the Polish Tennis Association, Miroslav Skripczynski. Um The allegations have been made by um, an MP, a serving MP called Katarzyna Kotula, um, who says that she was sexually abused as a child repeatedly um, by uh, Skripczynski. Uh, he's someone who's had an enormous impact on Polish tennis, which is obviously in a real boom moment. So it's a hugely significant story. Um, I will post a link to the interview in the show notes. I encourage you to read it through Google Translate. It is in Polish. Uh, the kind of key moments um, talking about Skripczynski, who was a coach when she was 13 or 14, she has one sentence he used to repeat over and over again. It was his favourite. When a woman says no, she means yes, which probably jars against the ears of people um, now, probably even did then. Uh, she says she was 13 and 14 years old when he sexually assaulted me at least a dozen times over three years when I was staying at the Energetic Grafino Club. Um, Iga Shrontek has spoken about it on length on Twitter. I'll put a link to all that um, as well. But she says, I feel like as a current leader of women's tennis, I can't be silent about particular matters. I remember that I appreciate having the freedom to decide whether I want to speak up about something. She goes on to say that she's urging a, a major investigation into all of this because it's so serious um, and speaks to how important it is that players have the opportunity to speak out and seek support and hotlines and organisations when these kind of things happen. It's a slightly sombre note to end the podcast on, and I apologise for that, but it's an important issue. I think people should read about it if they can. Um, we've obviously spoken about similar things earlier this year, um, the film Out, which, which we're hoping will be made about a similar topic, and it's important. Um, thank you, as always, for listening to the Love Tennis Podcast. Please do come back next week. Podcast Network.